You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. Welcome back. Hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. It is the 19th of April coming to you from Philadelphia. Great to have you joining us wherever you are listening to us around the United States or up into Canada. Coming up here in hour number two, the Supreme Court has heard arguments in the case to decide potentially the future of state sales tax being placed on Internet sales. We'll discuss the case from the perspective of lawyers who have written America's briefs on both sides of the case. Then in our final 30, we look at an organization that is trying to use big data to find the most effective charities on the planet. All of that coming up in hour number two of our show. The way for you to join in is either by phone at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment from Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. First, though, our number of the day, and our number of the day today is 100 million. In the latest shareholder letter to investors, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos said that the Prime subscription service had reached 100 million users worldwide. In fact, in 2017, he noted that Amazon added more users in that year than any prior year and had shipped 5 billion packages worldwide. Bezos added that 2017 was a record year for the sale of devices, stating that Amazon had, quote, sold tens of millions of Echo devices, end quote. Our number of the day, 100 million in terms of the number of users of the Amazon Prime service globally in 2018. The question of whether state sales tax should be associated with Internet sales is a question that still confounds the courts and lawmakers. Many years ago, rules were put into place that sales uh, that state State sales tax could only be collected if the company had a physical presence in that state. But today's e-commerce makes that a much different issue than back in uh, back many years ago. And because of the rule in place, billions of dollars in tax is being lost each year. It is the case, much like uh, surrounding the Internet these days, that the rules may not necessarily match the reality. Now, online retailer Wayfair and the state of South Dakota are appearing before the Supreme Court to get a ruling on what should be the case in 2018 and beyond. We're going to take a look at this case and where it might be headed with lawyers who have put together briefs for and against the tax. In studio, we are joined by Michael Knoll, professor of law and professor of real estate here at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also co-director of the Center for Tax Law and Policy. And also on the phone, Ruth Mason, who is a professor of law at the University of Virginia. They have written a brief for a change in the rule. And on the phone with us as well is Charles Trost. Uh, Charles is a uh, counsel of record at the firm of Waller, Lansden, Dorch, and Davis based in Nashville. He is also a professor of law on the faculty at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. Michael, as always, great seeing you again. Thank you. Thank you for coming in. Ruth, great to have you on the phone. Charles as well, great to have you both. Thanks. Thank you, Daniel. Michael, Ruth, nice to make your acquaintance on the phone. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, So I I will lay this out to allow... 
both sides to get their opportunity to present their case. Uh, Michael, I'll start with you. Why should we be thinking about this tax uh, and bringing it forward? Well, the existing law, which is 50 years old, prevents states from taxing remote sellers on sales into the tax into the state, prevents them from imposing the obligation for the remote seller to collect sales tax and then remit it to the state. States claim they're losing at least $10 billion a year as a result, and that the current tax system favors remote sellers over traditional brick and mortar sellers, as well as online sellers such as Amazon that have a physical presence in the state. And the view is that the physical presence requirement maybe never made sense, surely doesn't make sense today, and it should therefore be eliminated and with the goal of putting online and other sellers on an equal playing field. Ruth, anything you would like to add to that? Um, no, that, that's, that's a good description of the case. Okay. Charles, your side. Uh, why should the, these, uh, these online companies be protected? Well, first, I would disagree that the fiscal presence rule was, was not a good rule when it was passed. The, the advantage that it has is, is certainty because everyone knows where they are, where they're physically located. It, it gives a bright line that uh, people can rely on. But I think that this court should affirm the rule of Quill for three reasons. First, the Supreme Court really only has two options, either affirm Quill or reverse it. If Quill is reversed, it's going to create great uncertainty in the law and in the marketplace, which would leave many medium and small retailers in a position of have to either stop selling in those states or find some expensive software solution if one exists, and that's doubtful. And then there would be the issues of retrospective application of the law and the multiplicity of audits that they would be exposed to. And I think this is exactly the problem that the Commerce Clause was designed to prevent, which is why the court should leave it to Congress to fix if they deem it appropriate to do so. That, in fact, is what they did in Quill when they said this rule, if Congress doesn't like it, can be fixed by Congress. And as Chairman Goodlett said in his brief, uh, the Congress has been working very hard on this issue. It's complex. They've held multiple hearings, and we're in the process of hearing more until it that process was stopped by the court taking cert here. I think it should be left to the Congress. Now, the usual rule is when the court has issued a ruling and the Congress has the power to change it and leaves it alone, that's taken as an indication that the Congress approves of it. Uh, finally, uh, there is a simple, easy remedy that's within the control of each state, which is to simplify their sales tax collection rules like Connecticut did and which my client, Jury Television, has found very easy to, to comply with, and in fact does comply with, and not require the collection by a multiplicity of local taxing authorities like Colorado does, where Jury Television actually tried very hard to find a computerized solution to the collection problem that posed, and they simply failed. So were this rule to be changed, their choice is simply going to be to forego selling into the Colorado market, which is exactly what the kind, of, the kind of burden on interstate commerce that the Commerce Clause was designed to prevent from occurring. Michael? Um, 
Well, Charlie points out, and rightly so, Colorado. Colorado has about the most complicated sales tax system of any state in the country, with hundreds of different jurisdictions with different definitions, and many of them actually having the power to audit at that, that level. And I'm quite sympathetic to what Charlie is saying in terms of the concerns that many remote sellers would have about retrospective liability, about a multiplicity of audits, about difficulty complying with a host of regulations and different definitions and changing rates within a single state. That, however, is not the case with South Dakota. And in that sense, I don't think the state, the court has just a binary choice, affirm or reverse quill. That is, affirm, keep the status quo, or reverse, and basically say to the states, you can do anything. I think South Dakota is one of those states, and I gather Connecticut is as well, from what Charlie was just saying, that has really gone to great length to provide a reasonable and accessible system by basically having one set of rules for the state, uh, one set of definitions, in many cases one rate, but when the rates differ, there are limitations on how often they can change, on how they have to be defined, so mm -hmm. limited to five or nine-digit zip codes, providing information, and with the states helping defray the cost of collecting and, in essence, by allowing third parties to be appointed who are approved by the state, saying to the remote seller, you have no risk of audit or liability, turns up on an audit. Instead, that goes to this third party intermediary who the state is going to pay. Um, so again, quite sympathetic to the concerns they have. Don't think just throwing Quill out is the right answer. What we argued in our brief is that the court should accept what South Dakota has done, which has made it much easier under a, what's called a pike balancing test, a long balancing test that balances the burden on interstate commerce with the benefit to the state and affirm or you know, you know, allow South Dakota's rule to stand and hopefully then figure it out thereafter as other states provide their rules, but knowing that if they basically buy South Dakotas, they're in good shape. Ruth, let me ask you this. I mean, right now where we stand, how many states are we looking at that, that have gone the route of some sort of sales tax on internet sales? And uh, how are they doing in terms of the collection of that? Because I think that's a, that's a question that needs to be discussed as well. Well, most of the states have sales tax and uh, none of them can effectively collect that tax when the seller is a remote seller with no physical presence. Um, there's just no effective way for the state to even know that those sales have been made. So what you have now in the face of this 50-year-old rule requiring physical presence is states sort of desperate to collect that revenue, passing rules like the one Charlie described uh, for, uh, that Colorado passed, where Colorado is asking remote sellers to uh, send Colorado all kinds of information about the sales uh, that they're making into the state. And, and uh, those, those rules are quite burdensome, but they are not problematic under the physical presence standard. They don't violate it. So states can put on uh, uh, onerous 
reporting requirements. And so one of the things at, at stake in this Wayfair case is whether um, states can, inst in, instead of these uh, information reporting requirements, which are not as effective as asking the remote sellers to collect the tax directly, whether the states can collect, uh, ask the remote sellers to collect the tax directly, but not in every case. So what we argue in our brief is that there has to be a balance between the burden placed on the out-of-state seller and the state's interest in collecting tax. And there's lots of precedent at the Supreme Court for that kind of analysis. And we argued that the, the safety checks that South Dakota has put into place here, being a member of the Streamlined Sales Tax uh, Agreement and this bright line rule where no one's uh, required to collect the tax unless they meet a certain threshold of activity in the state, help prevent small sellers from getting caught up in what it would be an overly burdensome uh, tax collection requirement. Charlie, your response to that? Well, the, the first response I would have is that companies like Jewelry Television do not want to have to be reliant on third-party vendors for software because, number one, if they go out of business, if their system crashes, then that crashes them. And they're losing about $2 million a day in revenue as long as it takes them to get that back up. So putting it in the hands of a third-party vendor to collect this tax for them and to handle that puts them at even greater risk. Uh, the second thing is I don't think that when the court or the court to say physical presence is no longer a barrier, that's basically going to be the rule of law. And then it's going to be open season for every state to present whatever set of rules it wants to apply. Colorado has a 200 transaction, $200,000 limitation, but as was asked during the hearing, what is the limitation on sales tax collection by out-of-state vendors if there is no longer a physical presence rule? And the answer given by the state in this case, and also by the Solicitor General, was one sale is sufficient. That's the, case, that's the, the, the rule for uh, income tax in the case that came out of Washington. One employee in that state was sufficient to give taxing nexus. Well, that creates a tremendous burden on these small and medium-sized uh, vendors. Companies like Amazon, here, here's the real problem that people don't seem to focus on. If I am in a state, I have a locality, I know where I am, and I can very easily determine what the sales tax collection obligations are on me with respect to sales I make from that particular physical location. But if I'm in that state, either on the internet or on television, I'm in every household, I'm in every corner of that state. And in a state like, uh, well, Tennessee, for example, it's got 95 counties and we have local option taxes. It's not enough to say, well, we can go by zip codes because as is pointed out in Colorado, you can have a city with the same zip code in four different counties. Uh, it is is a solution that my client, Jerry Television, which is a very sophisticated computerized system with great software engineers, has simply not been able to tackle successfully. Companies like Amazon can do so because they can select where they want to collect the tax in Tennessee. I know because I was the Commission of Revenue in Tennessee when they determined they wanted to bring their distribution and warehouse systems into Tennessee, which then gave Tennessee tax of jurisdiction over them. That's a whole different ball game than saying electronic presence uh, is presence. 
and there are no limitations on the number of sales or the amount of sales. From the standpoint of someone who litigates in this area, it's a gift that keeps on giving. There will be tremendous amount of litigation. The lawyers across the country will love it. But that's not what we need from the standpoint of industry. And there are two solutions out there that the court can leave it to. The first solution is to leave it to Chairman Goodlad and his Judiciary Committee in the Congress and his counterparts in the Senate to continue the process of finding a solution that works for everybody. They can set limitations. They can put down a rule that says this is prospective. We're going to give you six months to get geared up to do it. They can do things that, that will protect the marketplace. Or the other solution is quite simple, and it's one that jury television asked for. Each state has within its power to do what Connecticut has done, say to out-of-state vendors, we've got one point of, of collection, we've got one rate, we'll make it simple for you, and you can comply. Now, states like Colorado or Alabama that don't want to comply, that they want to continue their complex, multi-jurisdictional tax system, that's fine. The cost of them being unwilling to simplify the system is they've got to continue to use the tools they have currently, which is to impose a use tax collection on their customer, on their citizens. And from the standpoint of someone who's been in the position of commissioner revenue, I can tell you that is not a very desirable political solution to the problem. That's why they don't use it. It's possible. There are states like Indiana, for example, that put a use tax collection provision in the back of their state income tax return, and they're able to collect it. But there's a political price to be paid in a state like Tennessee if the commissioner is sending assessments and notices on the sales tax due on a $15 purchase through some mail order dealer. That's a problem. Michael? Well, the problem with a binary choice is if the status quo is maintained, then remote sellers don't have to comply with the Connecticut law either. And so we continue to have this large advantage for remote sellers. Right. Many of us are skeptical that Congress is doing anything. They've had 25 years to do something, and they haven't taken any steps given the current default. If we change the default in the other direction, one, maybe they will take some steps. But alternatively, we don't have to move the default all the way to what both the state and what the uh, federal government asked for in that argument. The court could say what South Dakota is good enough, and it's pretty close. It's not everything that Charlie uh, has asked for, but I think it is pretty close. And then it could leave it to the courts to resolve it if the U.S. Congress is unwilling to. Well, and, and seemingly, Ruth, uh, right now, I, I don't know if we can have an expectation of, of Congress being able to tackle this. Uh, Michael mentions, you know, the ability to to, uh, to really dive in on this. But then we've seen a variety of issues involving Internet on other areas where Congress seemingly hasn't seemed to be up to speed on what uh, on what is actually going on and potentially what the impacts are. Right. So I think, you know, Congress has had, you know, not just 25 years, but you could even say 50 years since Bellis has to act on this issue and has taken no action. I would just want to emphasize that no matter how simple Connecticut's tax rules may be, even if every sales tax is a single rate, 
the system we have right now is such that if you do not have physical presence in Connecticut, you could have $10 billion of sales into Connecticut, and you are not required to collect that single rate sales tax. That's the rule we have right now, which provides a huge advantage for remote sellers who lack physical presence in the state over every brick and mortar seller in Connecticut and every remote seller that has a physical presence in the state. And I would also um, note that the certainty associated with physical presence may be overestimated. So on the one hand, it sounds like you know whether you're physically present in a state, but the states desperate to collect revenue have become more and more aggressive about what constitutes physical presence. So we know that when uh, Amazon was trying to avoid physical presence in any states that they weren't already in, they told their employees, when you're on vacation in that state, don't read your work email. Don't send any work emails because that could establish physical presence. Hmm. There are questions about whether a cookie on a phone can create physical presence in a state. So there's a lot of pressure on this physical presence uh, concept because remote sellers are increasingly having very significant economic activity in a state but escaping the obligation to collect sales tax, which obligation applies to every other seller. How important in your mind, Ruth, is this issue, especially moving forward, considering the retail landscape right now and and what uh, the expectation is of what retail will be, not only now, but in the next decade or two decades? Well, I mean, this is the this is you know what really motivates the continual bringing of these cases is changes in circumstance. So we're applying uh, the same law in each case. It's a balance between the state's interest in collecting the tax and the burden that that collection obligation imposes on interstate commerce. And those two those two things are on opposite sides of the scale. And what we're seeing over time, as more of the economy goes to digital that the state's interest in collecting the tax is always getting bigger as the, as the digital economy increases, as more sales can be made in the state remotely without a physical presence. And on the other side, the increase in computing power uh, makes the complexities of complying with the sales tax smaller. How significant, Charles, in your mind is this issue because of the, of the state of retail and then also the potential impact uh, that that retailers say, are, as you laid out, is there if these taxes are levied on them, even without having a physical presence in that state? Well, Ruth quite uh, accurately points out that there are a multiplicity of cases that litigate the issue of what constitutes a physical presence. My only response to that is simply this. If you think that that's a difficult fact to determine... Think about the difficulty of determining when you're electronically or economically present in a state. Those issues are really pretty tough, too, as evidenced by the uh, franchise excise or sales uh, uh, income and capital taxes that are based on the economic presence rule, which is, again, a complexity. But I don't think that it's going to change the dynamics of sales on the Internet because, use myself as an example, if, if I want to buy a book, I'm, I'm going to buy it through Amazon, and I'm not going to be deterred by the fact that I have to pay a Tennessee sales tax on it. I just don't want to get in my car and drive across town to a bookstore that may or may not have it in stock. So the the reality is that despite what people are saying about the, the sky is falling, Internet retail sales are only about 5% of the total volume of sales 
they are not increasing at the rate that people say. And the lost revenue, GAO has estimated, has been exaggerated by the states by a factor from two to three to one. So it's not that big of a, of a thing. South Dakota says we need this to pay for our schools. Well, the reality is that sales tax have increased in South Dakota in the years since they began this. Their sales tax are going up. Tennessee is very reliant on sales tax because we don't have an income tax. And yet our sales tax collection rates are going up, not down. So it's not like we're taking food out of the, the mouths of babes or school books out of the schoolrooms in South Dakota, what have you say. The, the problem Ruth identifies is that you've got this, this balance between the interest of the states and the burdens on interstate commerce. And all I can say is, from the perspective of the clients that I represent, these burdens are real. And when the petitioner in this case starts off by saying things like, it is so simple now to collect the sales tax, you need to just simply toggle a widget and there you're given a number, or collection is a mouse click away, and my client looks at that and said, what planet are they from? Are they actually tried to do this? It's just, that's the solution is not here. And it creates a burden on interstate commerce. And the rule of stare decisis is in place for a very important reason. The stability and predictability of the law is important. And when you have a whole industry, a multi-billion dollar industry that has developed in reliance on there being a continuing physical presence rule, and all of a sudden that rule is modified and changed, then you've got a whole industry that's got to change direction, shift gears, and get prepared for things they did not anticipate they would have to deal with. Ruth, your comments? So in in terms of reliance, I think when you have a a law that's tested every couple of decades and where the court uh, itself uh, says that we have to look at this again, um, you know, at some point, remote sellers aren't going to be able to rely on this rule anymore. And I think, you know, the Dormant Commerce Clause, the purpose of the Dormant Commerce Clause is to protect the national market and to prevent discrimination against uh, cross-border commerce. And I think it's a great irony that what we have under this is is an interpretation of the Dormant Commerce Clause that actually uh, creates discrimination in favor of one type of seller, which is a remote seller with no physical presence in the state. And I agree with Charlie that there are real issues there in terms of the burden on interstate commerce. But when when you've done something like uh, what South Dakota has done, which is join the streamlined sales and use tax agreement and simplify the tax and try to reduce that burden for the out-of-state seller. And you've put in clear, bright-line rules about when sellers are subject to this collection obligation. Then South Dakota is doing the right thing. Maybe some other state is doing something that's too complicated. But uh, the question in this case is whether South Dakota's rule should be upheld uh, despite this old physical presence rule. Your comments on this, Michael, and also uh, give us a little background for people that don't know about this streamlined sales and use tax agreement. Um, well, quickly, on terms of reliance, I would say the big reliance is the 90 or 95 percent of commerce that is bricks and mortar and is based on the idea that we are going to have a level playing field. They're the ones that are taking a huge hit. And um, 
And so because Congress hasn't worked this out, because the Supreme Court um, has that physical presence rule, the states got together, not all of them, about, yeah. about half in number and about a third in terms of economic power, and said, we get it. We understand that the risks that Charlie has talked about and which uh, are quite genuine and are real, and we want to eliminate them. So those that join this system agree to do a number of things to simplify tax collection, right. to have one set of definitions, to have limits on when rates can change that can only be done at the beginning in the quarter, to have set borders in a clear way, to provide for these third parties that we will pay and we will audit, all designed to, in essence, say, Congress, court, we hear you, and the arguments that the remote sellers are making, we hear you, that the current system, if it were to be abrogated and would allow the worst of state activity to right. continue, would be too difficult to deal with. And so we are going to make it much, much simpler. How are you going to solve the retrospective application problem? The state and the Solicitor General uh, said there's no prohibition. A lot of states have a, no statute of limitations if you have not filed a return. And the court has said... There's no principal reason in which where we can find that when we enunciate a rule of law, it's not entitled to have retrospective application. That is a very significant problem that the court can't fix, but the Congress can. So I just leave you with that thought. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Congress could do that regardless of the ruling. In this case, Congress could make it not retrospective. Thank Absolutely. you. Thank you all for joining us today. Michael, uh, thanks for coming in the studio. As always, great seeing you. Ruth and Charles, thank you for your time on the phone today. Enjoyed it. Right. Thank you. And we have no idea how this case is coming out. Exactly they really right. made it unclear in terms yeah. of the argument. Exactly so right. So exciting to watch. Exactly yeah. right. Thank you. We will take a break. Our final 30 coming up in just a minute. After the break, we will talk with a pair of Wharton alums who are uh, using data to be able to try and find and help assist some of the uh, most successful charities around the globe. We'll talk with them in just a minute. Sirius XM 111 Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. A Business Radio Brief. We're joined by Jack Welch and Susie Welch. Leadership today, let's be clear, is so good compared to what it was in my time. People are much more engaged. People are more involved. The process is so much better. I do think leaders also, there's a higher cultural value on leaders being authentic. People do bring more of their whole selves to work, but there's never enough of it. It distills down to two words, truth and trust. You've got to get truth in your company, get rid of the spin and all that, and you'll only get that if people trust you. Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111.